There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 358. And today in the show, I'm joined by DIY bow hunter Heath Cisco to discuss in detail exactly how he locates studies and moves in on top tier whitetail bucks. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today on the show, we have got another good one for you. And uh, I might be biased here, but I feel like the last month of shows has just been loaded with great whitetail knowledge. Uh, Joe Rentmeester, Andy May, Justin Hollinsworth, and now Heath Cisco. That's just a stacked lineup of deer hunters. And that, of course, is by design. Hunting season's quickly approaching. And as all of our preparations are ramping up as we head into hunting season, I want to make sure that we're ramping up the podcast and all the knowledge that we can bring you to. So we're going to continue that in the coming weeks and months. We've got some really great how-to stuff coming up. And today's episode definitely fits right in there with that. You know, Heath Cisco is a very experienced big buck hunter from Ohio. He's been involved with filming for Don and Candy Kiske, The Learning Curve, and Whitetail Addictions, where his most recent hunts have now been airing. He's hunted in a variety of places all across the country, ranging from farm country scenarios to hill country, and all along the way, he's targeted top-tier bucks, you know, just pushing himself year after year after year to become better. And here's the thing. You know, whether or not you want to shoot a doe or a young buck or any buck or a big mature buck, whatever it is, whatever your goals are, you can learn from somebody like this. Because I think that when you've got a guy who is setting high standards for himself and he's figured out ways to meet those goals, you know, it's someone that's had to learn a lot, who's had to test a lot of new ideas, who's failed a lot, and then try to figure out new approaches. And then they have to do that over and over and over again, trying to get over that next hump, over that next personal goal. Uh, You can learn a lot from somebody like this, regardless of what your goals are. And I think that, I think that I certainly did. And I think you will too learn some things from Heath. And Here's the other thing that's pretty interesting is that Heath is actually hunting buddies with Justin Hollinsworth, our guest on the podcast, last week. And I did this on purpose, you know, having them on back-to-back episodes because I think it I think it is 
kind of interesting to compare and contrast their two approaches and these two discussions because you've got two guys here who share ideas, who think about things in some of the, in some similar ways, who swap hunting stories, who share hunting properties even, and you'd think that they would do the exact same thing maybe, but that's not entirely true, or at least it's not, it's not entirely true when it comes to how they think about some of these things and how they communicate them. So I think by having these two conversations back to back like this, by grilling these two guys separately in detail about how they hunt, we've kind of gotten a really cool masterclass on this aggressive style of hunting that they both use, but through two different sets of eyes, two different sets of experiences. And, uh, at least from my vantage point, it turned out being very interesting and helpful. Um, and I'm, I'm armed now with some new ideas that I'm excited to give a shot. So, that is what we have in store today. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm excited for you to hear it. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Man, we've been around a long time, this podcast. I mean, years and years and years. 350-some episodes of the main show and you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of radio and, and all this stuff. And you guys have stuck with us. I hope, I hope that it... What am I trying to say here? I hope it's because... We've been helpful enough to make this a worthwhile, valuable part of your day. And if that's the case, I'm tickled. That's that's all I could ever wish for. So uh, all that is to say, thank you. Enjoy this one. Sit back, grab a pen and paper because you might want to take some notes. And let's get ready to talk bucks. All right, I'm excited now to have on the line with me Heath Cisco. Heath, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a good chat. I, I can already tell. I've I've been listening to various things you've done. I've I've seen various videos you've done. I've talked to people you know, um, and so I know you are a wealth of information. But before we dig into all sorts of things related to how you target big old mature bucks, uh, for people that aren't familiar with who you are, can you just give us the quick rundown? Who's Heath Cisco? How'd you get to this point? Sure. Well, I started uh, bow hunting at an early age and uh, set my goals for Pope and Young class bucks at the age of 18. I, uh, the following year, I was successful with that. Uh, several years later, I got into videoing and got to be friends with uh, a guy by the name of Don Kiske and uh, worked for uh, Whitetail Extremes for a few years and videoed. And then I got back out of it because it took basically two people to in a tree to do the videoing and stuff. Got back out of it. I uh, just was a hardcore bow hunter trying to pick up everything I could from different people of the means of uh, Miles Keller, uh, Gene Winslow, Roger Rothar, Bobby Worthington, different people like that. And then in 2006, uh, stumbled onto a guy by the name of Andre DeQuisto, and uh, my hunting completely changed after that point. And I've been very successful over the past uh, several years. Yeah, you, you've got a heck of a lot of uh, impressive mentors and influences there that a lot of us have learned from from afar, but you've actually been able to have some of that up-close experience. And it's funny, one of the guys that I know that you run with now, a friend of yours, Justin Hollinsworth, was just on the show uh, previously here. I chatted with him last week. I think it'll be when this one airs. And I've never done this before, had hunting buddies back-to-back. So it's kind of, it kind of sets up an interesting thing, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, but it sets up an interesting comparison where 
two guys that have hunted together in the past that know each other's ways. You know, I'm, I'm asking Justin last week what he does. Now this week I'm going to be kind of picking your brain, and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what you guys have in common, where you guys deviate. And I guess I should ask you first, though, would you say that there are any big things that you and Justin differ on? Is there something that he thinks you're just nuts for doing or vice versa? Uh, no, nothing jumps out at me. I mean, we each have our own little thing. We do maybe just a little bit different, but uh, most of them are the same. I mean, we bounce ideas back. If, if he's doing something that I'm not doing, our conversations lead me into doing something like that uh, or vice versa, I think, because we bounce so much stuff off of each other. Yeah. Can you, can you think of any recent time when one of you guys – brought up a new idea to the other that was like, a, ah, that's a damn good idea. Can you think of any example like that? Sure. Well, several years ago, uh, I was into uh, making mock scrapes and running cameras over them, not necessarily hunting over them, but running cameras over them. And I just happened to stumble on to uh, using uh, white pine branches above the scrapes. And I don't know what it is. Uh, the sap, maybe it holds the scent more or whatever, but it seems like if you hang these white pine branches in the woods over a scrape uh, the deer kind of uh you know are funneled towards them and it's great for getting uh, trail camera pictures and uh, i tip justin off to that and he's been uh, doing it with great success that's a good little tip so do you so you're cutting off a white pine branch somewhere else and relocating it to a spot yes. you want a scrape to be yes and i, I don't i think some of it's visual but then also uh, i i assume that uh, they're able to leave more scent on it, and I, I don't know if they just like the pine limb in their, in their face or what, but uh, it works very well. I just tried it one day, and uh, every place I've been, it's been very successful. And like I said, I'm mainly uh, for out of state, like in Illinois and Iowa and stuff, uh, using those where you're not allowed to use, let's say, some kind of bait or attracting or something like that. Yep. Setting up mock scrapes within pine tree limbs have been great. And how are you attaching those limbs to, are you attaching them to a tree or to a post or where, where and how are you doing that? Sure. Well, I have, uh, in one of my food plots I've got, I've got a post with a piece of rebar coming out of the top of it, bent over, and then I attach it to that rebar. In the woods, it's mainly just taking some wire ties and tying it uh, to another branch. Okay. Yeah. And letting it hang, letting it hang straight down. Okay. Yeah, those mock scrapes are some of my favorite ways for uh, for getting those pictures, like you described. But that's a good it's a good idea with a specific type of branch. Um, so back to back to Justin for a second. Then, am I right that you guys have in the past shared a hunting property, hunt the same place at the same time? Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we did this past uh, this past fall. Uh, we were hunting on an Illinois farm together, and he actually. Uh, I seen the buck that I took uh, a couple days from stand, and then I got out there and was able to get on him and uh, get him down. Yeah, that, that that's what I saw. And so here's my question then about that: is what's the dynamic like when you guys are sharing a hunting property? Because I think this is something that that I've encountered, but haven't really talked to other people about. Like, what are some of the right ways or wrong ways to manage that when you've got two serious hunters or several serious hunters who are hunting the same place? And in the back of their minds, they have a certain spot they want to hunt. And, you know, there could be some competition going on there. Or I don't know, how do you guys manage that so it doesn't become a negative thing where someone's jealous or upset because someone gets the better spot or somebody killed the other guy's buck that he really wanted or anything like that? How do you manage that? 
Sure. And you got to watch that because like me and Justin are really good friends and we share information on the properties that we hunt in Illinois. And uh, so I use some of his information to actually tag this buck that I did. And uh, it's not that he couldn't have done it, but when he was out there for his three or four day time span, uh, it just didn't work for him. He was, he was basically unlucky. He picked one stand and the deer was by another one. And then it, it just didn't work out for him. me when I went out there. I just got really aggressive and jumped right in on his bed and end up killing it. And he was tickled to death for me because we had other deer to hunt. So it's, it's okay. If you have several deer to hunt, if you only have one particular buck that you're both after, uh, that could get a little hairy. Yeah. So do you guys pick different times to hunt or when you guys are there together, do you have a system for who gets first pick of what spot they want to hunt or anything like that? Uh, we usually don't do that. I mean, it's just whatever works out for him. Like I could have went out the same time in late October that he did, but I just decided to give him uh, four days on hunting and then I would jump in afterwards. That way I had the whole farm to myself. Gotcha. Uh, but at times, you know, we may be out there at the same time during the rut and, uh, we'll just use each other and try to team up and take advantage of, uh, opportunities. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, so I want to rewind now a little bit to something you mentioned in the beginning. You said that when you were 18 or 19 years old, you pretty quickly jumped into having some kind of goal attached to your hunting and you decided you want to try to kill Pope and Young Buck. And I hear, I've heard recently that you've continued to advance that goal to now you're targeting 170 plus whitetails. Um, ideally, I'm just kind of curious to hear what was that process like for you going from just trying to figure out hunting to then deciding you want to set a, a 125 type goal and then bumping that up year after year to where you are now? Um, why do you do that? What's that process been like? And what do you, what do you, what are you trying to get out of that? If you know what I mean? Sure. So uh, for one trophy hunt is trophy hunting isn't for everyone. So each person's got to set their own goals and do what they want to do. I don't look down on anybody for targeting smaller bucks or even does. It's their own personal choice. Uh, when I was 17, 18 years old, I was hanging out with a couple guys that were older and had taken Pope and Young class deer. And I just wanted to step up. I killed a couple bucks. I wanted to step my game up. It actually, the following year, I was able to meet that goal and I just kept my goal every year was at least a 130 class deer. And then it would jump up to a couple years later, it would jump up to a 140. And then, you know, it's, I can't say it slowly progressed because it's backtracked several times and stuff as well. I went down in score and then some years I didn't kill a deer, but, uh, it's just a goal I set for myself. And, uh, so going through the whole process, uh, in the beginning, it was like, can I kill a good buck every two or three years? Then it got to a point to where, okay, I'm doing that. I want to kill one every other year. And then it got to where I wanted to kill a good one every year. And when it got to that certain point of killing one every year, uh, my, I kept raising the bar on score wise. And it's not that I try to set my goal to kill a bigger deer than what I killed this year. Next, it's just a personal goal I set for myself. So like in Ohio, my goal at the beginning of the season is a 170 class buck and I'll pass up really good deer to try to meet that goal. But when it gets close to uh, December, when our gun season comes in, after December, my, if I'm not on a really good buck, my standards drop and I try to hunt a really mature buck. And then come into late December and January, that really mature buck may be a 120-inch buck. It may be a 140-inch buck. But that's what I'll target. I'll change my target goal towards the end of the season. Do you ever find yourself 
upset because you passed on a buck, like a 160-inch great buck in mid-October that in December you would have loved to get a shot at and then you don't? Or are you, are you always pretty happy with that just because it was the process and that, that pushing yourself that you were really going for? Well, in the beginning, when I first started setting my goal higher and higher, yes, it was. Uh, I was upset a couple times because one of the bucks I passed was a 160-some-inch 10, and three days later, it got hit by a car. Oof. And I was the reason I passed him is because I just knew he could be a Booner class next year. And that was kind of tough. But over the years, uh, just like this year, I passed up a really good buck in Ohio, a couple of them, and then ended up killing a lot smaller deer, but it was an older age class deer. And, you know, you, I mean, you set your goal. That's what you're going to do. I'm happy with it, especially now that uh, I got a camera with me all the time. You know, it's just like I've killed the buck. I've got him on film. It make, it's great footage. I can show my family, and uh, that's satisfying enough for me. Yeah, that is fun. And you can kind of relive that moment over and over, and that's still pretty cool. Yes. Uh, so so tell me this then. So over the years, you, you've set these goals. They've been growing over time. You continue to push yourself and continue to to reach those goals most times or at some times. I'm curious what have been the biggest changes in how you operate that have gone along with it? So from when you're 18 and shooting 125s to now when you're targeting these 170s at the beginning of the season, what have been the biggest changes in how you operate as a hunter? Has there has it been, you know, I don't know if this will be the case, but could it be like, you know, every year I've gotten more serious about this type of thing? Or I'm just kind of curious if there's like a handful of things or one particular thing that you could see as the most dynamic changing factor in how you hunt that has allowed you to progress higher and higher with these goals. Sure. I, I, I would say there's several things. For one, uh, I've taken my scouting to a whole other level. Uh, used to, all my scouting was done in January and February, and I would lay out my plan to hunt particular farms during the rut the following year. And I would already pre-hung my, pre-hang my stands, get all my spots set up, and that worked, but it didn't work great because a lot of, some of the farms just don't have the caliber of bucks that I'm after. And I would spend time in there just knowing that a buck was of the caliber I wanted on the farm when in all actuality there wasn't one. So I'm running cameras now to determine which farms actually have the deer, plus scouting on top of that because a lot of times you can hang cameras on a farm and uh, not get pictures of a big buck, but there could be one in there. I just run multiple farms, uh, do a lot more scouting, uh, and I hunt. Uh, I try to hone my skills. Let's say I got pretty decent at killing uh, bucks during the first week of November. Well, what do I got to do to kill one the last week of November? What do I got to do to kill one the first week of October? What do I got to do to kill one the last week of January? I start, you know, rounding myself out as a good hunter in all phases of the season instead of just sticking with hunting the rut, which what I that's what I used to do when I first started. It was just hunting the rut, spending as much time in the woods and on the stand as possible and just waiting on one to walk by. And are you are you honing those skills simply by just spending more time focusing on those time periods, so actually being in the stand at different parts of the year, or are you doing anything on top of that, like, I don't know, reaching out to other people and asking your buddy Andre or your buddy so-and-so, like, hey, how are you killing bucks in January or whatever it might be, and then starting to try to you know proactively find these ways to, to kind of sharpen the blade for each different part of the season, um, 
or maybe studying past history? I don't know. Are there any specific ways you're doing it other than just being out there? Sure. Well, uh, and like you said, I'm looking into people who are having great success early season. Uh, I started having really good luck in early season, first couple of days of season, which normally I wouldn't even hunt. I would hold off, save my vacation for the last uh, last week of October, the first two weeks of November. Uh, now, after talking to, in 2006, like I said, when Whitetail Addictions came out, uh, completely changed my outlook on pursuing Whitetail. Uh, just the aggressiveness tactics that Andre applied, and, and his hunting is, is, I mean, he loves October, and I hardly hunted in October back then. Uh, so what I did was I started listening to him, listening to other people, and started going in and trying things. And I, I would try something. I would try setting up a certain way on a buck, uh, you know, in a feeding area on acorns in second week of October. And then if that didn't work, well, then I would try to find his bed, move in closer. I would. It's trial and error. Uh, listening to people that you believe in and taking note, taking their tactics and applying them in a hunting setting and figuring out what works. And when it works, you just build off of that. And that's what I've done. And then picking his brain and same way with picking Justin's brain and uh, several other people and just trying to apply that and seeing what works and honing my skills. Yeah. Justin was talking the other day about how one of the biggest biggest kind of shifts for him when it went from having kind of average success to above average success was when he started pushing outside of his comfort zone. That was his big thing was, was getting outside of the normal, getting outside of the routine, getting uncomfortable, doing things that usually he would think, Oh, I shouldn't do that. But once he started doing those things, then he started learning more, growing more. Um, would you, would you agree that that was kind of a similar transition you went through when you started being more aggressive with some of those DeQuisto tactics and whatnot? Absolutely. So uh, basically, I was real conservative, uh, set back, only hunt certain farms, certain places at certain times. I relied more on the rut to get the uh, bucks up and moving. Uh, and now uh, I go in and I scout, I run cameras, I scout, you know, boots on the ground, uh, try to locate travel corridors, beds and hunt bucks accordingly. And I hunt specific bucks. And then, uh, you know, it was always... My main thing was it was fear of failure. I didn't want to screw it up. I finally started getting over that hump because if I screw it up, I screw it up. But if I don't push the envelope and get in there and try to make it happen, I'll miss out on an opportunity. The last 10 years, I've had so many great bucks that I've had the opportunity to hunt, but I kind of tiptoed around and set back. Now I get in and just get after it and, uh, and make my first hunt count. And if it doesn't work, I tear down and I move to another spot, scout out, hang, and I make that hunt count. Yeah. Just don't fear failure is uh, is what probably uh, is the biggest limiting factor for bow hunters, in my opinion. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. I, I've certainly had a, a long period of my hunting career where that's that was kind of the state of operation, where I was constantly just trying not to screw it up. I was just so worried about blowing a deer out that, uh, that, yeah, you can just become paralyzed and, and never really put yourself in a position to succeed because you're so worried about messing it up. So it's a great, it's a great point. Now with these high standards that you're setting for yourself, you're setting pretty aggressive goals. You're going in after specific bucks. You mentioned that you used to do all that scouting in the spring and then come back and hunt later in the fall. And sometimes these bucks you were after weren't even in the neighborhood. So 
what are you doing now to to actually locate that best buck? You know, the the top tier buck. Does that does that start in the summer with glassing? Does that start with just trail cameras in season? How do you actually locate that number one buck or two that you're after each year? So several different ways. It may start uh, during the previous hunting season. It may start two seasons prior when I've seen this buck or got some pictures of him. It may start when I'm scouting a new farm in the spring and I locate some big sign. And then I, you know, put, hang some cameras in there over a mineral lick or whatever, to try to locate and figure out what bucket is and then go from there. Or it could be driving around on the back roads, uh, you know, in mid August, uh, glassing bean fields anyway, or it could be just from a rumor of somebody saying, Hey, you know, we jumped a big buck back here in gun season and nobody got him, you know, that kind of deal. Then I'll try to, uh, figure I'll look at aerial photos, figure out property owners, and then dive in after that if I can get permission. Do you ever go into a summer period where there's not a buck from previous years that you're really thinking you're gonna be too interested in? You haven't picked up anything on camera, so you you actually go out proactively searching for a buck like that in the summer, knowing that you're gonna have to get new permission, but you're just gonna drive around till you see that one seventy or that one eighty or that special buck. Um knowing that you're just going to have to figure out access somehow? Sure. Well, uh, I have a, you know, a lot of farms that I can hunt. I have access to in Ohio. And uh, so a lot of times, you know, the quality of buck may not be on one of those farms. Or maybe there's a couple bucks that are good bucks, but maybe I'm, I hear about another just absolute giant on another farm. And then I try to pr- uh, pursue permission on it as well. And then, you know, I like I like having three or four bucks that I have uh, on my list to actually go after because something always happens. Another hunter moves in here or you lose permission and uh, or this buck just disappears. And then, you know, like this year, I had a buck that I was pursuing in Ohio that would I would have thought that would have uh, hit that 170 mark. And he disappeared on me. Uh, he lived on a farm that I didn't have access to, but I had access to the neighboring farm and he didn't live on me. So I hunting it hunted him uh, sparingly and hoping that during the rut he would slide over through there with a doe because I had a lot of does on my farm and uh, he ended up disappearing on uh, November the 8th I never got another picture of him again never seen him Uh, but I was I can't say I was I was somewhat in the game but uh, it was a rut game that I was playing I was hoping one of the ladies would drag him over and it just never happened (laughs) yeah that's a uh, it's a risky game to play you just never know sure and I was not able to uh, locate uh another huntable buck of that caliber. So uh, I spent my season season looking around trying to find a buck like that and end up uh, getting on an older age class buck in uh, late December and was able to take it in January. Nice. So let's keep talking summer. Um, Can you walk me through your summer glassing? Is that simply a matter of driving around the neighborhood by properties you already hunt or... Do you have, I don't know, do you ever look at the maps and say, man, this is just a good-looking area. I want to explore this spot and start driving around. And I don't know, any, any specifics as far as how you try to locate summer bucks in that way? So I'll take a few trips in my truck, glass and bean fields from the road. Uh, and I've had some success with that, some pretty good success with that. Then other ones, uh, there'll be like a hidden bean field or a... Uh, a isolated uh, CRP field to where I know some deer hang out throughout the summer, maybe staging to go up, go on out to the road where maybe beans are and stuff. So I use that a little bit. I mainly uh, try to run my cameras in different, uh, let's say, uh, water holes because you know when it gets real dry in the summer, uh, you find seeps inside of these hills, and then maybe there's a pond 
or and in Ohio you're allowed to run minerals. So running uh, minerals is great to get pictures of bucks in July and August. So I'll try to locate them that way. I, like I said, I haven't had a lot of success driving around, but I have had some uh, pretty good success. What's your uh, What's your routine with the summer cameras? How often do you check at that time of the year? Uh, well, I'll, I put my cameras out uh, this coming weekend. It's always right, right around July 4th. And then I'll leave them out till uh, late August. And then I'll go back in late August and replenish the mineral and, uh, and pull the, switch the cards out. And then I won't go back in there until uh, uh, mid-September and pull the cards again. And then uh, a lot of times where, where I hang cameras and stuff, you know, the deer aren't living there in the summer. Some of them are, some of them aren't. They're on out, staged in other areas, on other farms where the uh, food is because it's all about food. So, uh, and if I don't have anything come, you know, September, well, then I know there's some areas where deer always, uh, when they do their transition from summer patterns to uh, fall ranges, uh, they'll move in and uh, I can usually locate one that way. Yeah, so what's then the shift? When that shift happens, you get into September, deer kind of relocate. How do you transition your trail camera strategy? Are you, I'm assuming maybe you move to new locations? Uh, is it just the, the, the mock scrape locations with those pines that you mentioned, or do you, or do, you do anything else? Well, I don't usually, I don't put the, uh, the pine tree limbs out till about the uh, first, first to second week of October. And then almost all my pine uh, pitchers or mock scrape with pine tree limb pitchers are uh, the second week of October through the first week of November. And then I'll get some more. I'll leave them out, but it's mainly that time frame. And then at the end of uh, November, I'll get pitchers again on them because during the usually during the breeding phase, I don't get very many pitchers because they're usually locked down with uh, dose. But uh, I transition my cameras back to. Uh, uh, a big goal is to find the acorn acorn trees that are producing. Let's say if I can find a, a white oak flat that's uh, loaded with acorns, I just know the deer are going to stack in there. Down here, they, they've cut a lot of timber, and there's not a lot of – you may have a 300-acre farm, and there's only, let's say, 30 white oak trees. So if you can find them white oak trees and they got acorns on them, uh, you can guarantee you that the uh, biggest buck in the area is probably going to be in there eating acorns at some point in time. Uh, if there's no pressure and I set up uh, cameras associated with food. And so that, that's an interesting thing that I'm, I'm constantly debating trying to find those in-season food sources like that, that, you know, requires you moving around more, checking out new areas and going back to what you alluded to earlier, the whole fear of failure. I am always worried, you know, if I move around too much looking for something like that hot oak tree, um, I could end up pump, bumping something around. How do you balance that? How do you get in there with a camera to check for oaks or just to see it yourself and set up to hunt without doing it too often or in the wrong way? Sure. Well, I'll give you a quote that Andre DeQuisto told me. He said, you got to bump some deer to kill some deer. So uh, you got to think about it. If Let's say you have access to this 200-acre farm, and there's also a squirrel hunter that has access to it as well, or a coon hunter that goes in there. Do you not think those deer are not getting jumped by that rabbit, that squirrel hunter, or that coon hunter? They're getting pushed around. It's it's what kind of pressure you're actually applying to it. If you go in there and you tromp through the woods and you avoid certain bedding points and this and that, you know, you're just going through there one day and, and the deer sees that they were able to avoid you. Uh, they got away. Uh, you know, it, it worked for them. But if you go in there every day, tiptoeing around, sneaking and, and acting like a predator, you know, they will start acting a little bit differently. 
But uh, you just got to keep the wind in your face, go in there and scout different corners of the farm, go in there a little bit deeper at times. Uh, I like going in a week or so before season and just tearing a farm apart to figure out everything. You can see the sign. And then when season gets here, I already have a game plan on where you're going to set up the first day. And then once you hunt there the first day, tear your set down, scout around just a little bit, tiptoe. Don't let your scent blow into the bedding area. Don't go up there and push the bedding spots and just set up again on fresh sign and hunt in and just continue moving around. And then as the season progresses, you should be figuring a lot more out. Then if it gets to the time frame like happened to me last year in Illinois where it was the last week of October and you still haven't been able to get it done, but you know around about where that buck's bedding, dive in there, scout it out, and hang a set on their bed if everything works out right. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, it's not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So, so you got you to gotta walk me through, yeah, week before opening day scouting session first off. Is that something that you're, that you're going to try to do every year on some of your top spots no matter what? Or does it have to be that you have to get that? right wind and it has to be a rainy day or really windy day or something that allows you to be particularly stealthy with it. What's, you know, what are some of the qualifiers there? 
Sure. So uh, if, if I have uh, my choice, I would prefer to go in uh, during the day when it's going to rain at night. Uh, I want a good, a good heavy rain after I'm already through there, if at all possible. If it's a couple weeks before season, if I can time it that way, then great. If not, I'll just go in there and tromp around. You know, do the best I can, cover every inch of the ground to see, uh, you know, where deer are bedding at, what acorn trees are dropping and they're feeding on, what kind of sign have they laid out to this point, what kind of tracks have I seen, is the crossing that I've seen in the spring, is it, you know, is it are they using it as much as they were before? Because it's a, it's a week or two before season, so I go in there that one day, tear it apart. And then leave, and I'm not back in there again till I'm going in there that morning to hunt. <laughs> you said something that kind of stuck with me. You mentioned about some of the things not to do. You said if you're walking all over too often, sneaking around like a predator, you might spook these deer more so than otherwise. So when you go out and do this preseason scouting session, and you're going in there that one day, and you're tearing it apart to learn everything just before, are you actively trying to be louder than you had to be are you trying to kind of be like hey i'm a farmer walking through here or i'm just like a random dude walking with my dog um or do you sneak and you can kind of just get away with it so the two week before usually i just tromp through there like uh, you know i try not to uh i try to keep the wind in my face as much as possible that way if i do jump a buck he doesn't get wind of me he'll just know that something scared him up out of his bed or whatever but i just i, I tromp around a lot i want to leave uh, no stone unturned. Uh, but then when I go back into hunt and, and then I do my scouting, then I kind of tiptoe a little bit. You know, I keep the wind, I keep my wind out of the bedding areas that I found two weeks prior. And then I just go down and look at this crossing. I go up there, look at this tree and see if they're, you know, eating acorns or it started dropping. Or if I seen a big rub over here, does it still look like they're using this trail? Then I'll jump over and hunt those. Do you have any kind of system for recording everything you find? Do you mark up maps? Do you write down in a journal what you saw? Or do you just kind of store it in your mind and just remember the very most important stuff? Well, used to, I, uh, I just wrote down in logs. I kept everything. I'd have an aerial photo, and I would write down different things I've seen and, uh, and where my tree stands were, the sign and stuff. Now, uh, I can't say I've used it, but because I, I just uh, – this Father's Day discount they had for Onyx I just purchased <laughs> – Justin nice. talked me into that, so he's a good salesman. Uh, but uh, but I'm planning on. I used Hunt Stand before, but I had some issues with it. But yes, I like uh, I like uh, putting waypoints and different things like that on different locations that I find, uh, maybe in the spring or maybe you know the two weeks before when I'm in there looking around. But usually, if it's just two weeks, well, it's it's not going to leave my memory. I'll remember it pretty good. So yeah. Now, what about the scenario you outlined there, where you're walking through and you bump a deer? And he doesn't wind you, but uh-huh. you bumped a buck. Um, let's let's lay two scenarios. One scenario is the week or two before the season, and then the second scenario is is actually in season. You're scouting in season, and you bump the buck. Would you do the exact same thing? Um, like, would you go right to the bed and look at it, or would you back away and say, "Okay, I bumped that buck out of here, but I'm I don't want to mess it up anymore. I'm going to wait until hunting season." What do you? What's your next move after you bump a buck up? So it depends on if, if I bump it pretty close, then I'll just stand there and look around and uh, survey the situation. And then uh, try to, uh, if I need to move over 20 yards, if I need to go up there and look at his bed just to see what he will see, he, what he can see, I will do that. If I'm purposefully going in to jump a the buck out of a certain bedding area, then once I jump him, I'm going to go over and check out what he's 
stand up there by his bed just to kind of try to find his travel route into that bed. And then I'll back off, hang my stand, and then I'll be there the next morning. Uh, but I definitely don't, uh, during season, uh, go in, jump a buck. I don't purposely go in and jump a buck unless I'm going hunting the next morning during okay. season. Now, what what are you? how do you actually do that next step when you described actually going in there, standing in the buck's bed, and trying to learn how he comes in and out and what he's doing? Can you walk me through like exactly what you're looking at, exactly how you kind of read the clues? Sure. So, uh, like I said, if, if I'm purposefully going in to jump a buck out of the bed, for one, I know what the wind direction is that day, and that tells me where this buck's probably going to be bedded from where I've seen, let's say, a couple weeks before or the prior spring. Uh, I'll get the wind in my face, head into that bedding area, and just you know ease forward, ease forward, and, and eventually, hopefully, jump that specific buck and see exactly where he's bedded and where he runs off. When I do that, I'm thinking, okay, the wind this morning at, let's say, 7 o'clock in the morning was blowing this way. It's still blowing this way. It's coming out of the north, let's say. So if I know that, I know that he's going to try to get as much nose wind from that bed as he can before he gets up into it, if the wind had stayed constant that day. So I'll figure out how they're kind of J-hooking into that bed, whether he's coming in out of a ditch down below it, walking straight up towards it, or he's coming down a ridge and just making a little loop out into that bed. Then I'll set up my stand from there uh, to hopefully the next morning. Usually when I go into a, to hunt a buck's bed uh, or look for a buck's bed, if, if there's going to be a rain that night, it's a perfect situation because it'll wash away my scent. And then I have maybe a day or two to play with it. If it isn't going to rain, but the wind's supposed to remain constant in the same direction the following day, I have more confidence in going in there knowing that if I jump him, I can set up on that and the wind's going to be the same the next morning and he's going to take the same travel path, more or less, into that spot again and I can take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. But I would not I would not do that if, uh, if today the wind's coming out of the north, I'm going in there and jumping a buck out of his bed, but tomorrow morning it's supposed to be coming out of the south. I would not do that. I would. I want the conditions. It could change, but I want the conditions to be uh, the same wind that day as it's going to be the next day. We're on the same wavelength, Heath. That was exactly what I was going to ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> what um, what type of scenario would you have to be in to do that? To actually proactively go in there and try to bump a buck out of his bed like is that when you get to desperation mode and you're thinking all right i gotta make something happen um or i don't know what gets you to the point where you decide that you're going to go in and use that strategy other than just the consistent wind direction thing which you just mentioned sure well uh, one of the main things is you got to know when to lay back and let things uh, uh you know develop theirself and then you got to know when you got to lay on it and get it done uh i've set back too many years in the past and just waited on things to develop and maybe the neighbor kills it or maybe the buck disappears knowing the roundabout area bucks bedding in uh, what i usually do is hunt travel corridors food sources and stuff in early october the first week or two then when it gets into the uh to the going on the third week and if i'm getting nervous that this something's gonna happen to this buck or whatever i don't think that i'm gonna be able to have time to get it done then i'll get aggressive the same way out in Illinois this past uh, fall. Uh, Justin had four days to go out there and, uh, and uh, hunt, and he went out there and hunted and seen the buck a couple times. It was the last week of October. I got out there on the 28th. I didn't have time to screw around. We knew this buck was in this block of timber. 
I'd scouted it before, uh, not that season, but the, in the years past. And I kind of knew there was several uh, knolls or fingers that this these uh, older age class bucks like betting on. Uh, so it was supposed to rain that night. The wind was supposed to stay consistent the following day. So I dove right in there after I suspected that most of the deer would have been moved down into the field. Uh, dove in there, scouted out several points, located a couple big beds, some big rubs, and a couple big tracks. And I could see kind of how I knew by the lay of the land and the way the wind was going to be blowing that how they would, I assume, would be approaching approaching the bed. And I hung a stand, and uh, you can see in the video on Whitetail Addictions to where uh, the bucks were looping right in. They got a little nervous. Uh, the wind was gusting back and forth a little bit, and they decided for some reason they wasn't going to bed under this big hedge apple tree where all these beds were, and they decided to cut down the bank to go to the other bed, and that's when I was able to take my shot. Yeah, I saw that. I was, I was struck by the timing of your scouting session because, like you mentioned, Justin had been seeing this buck going out to a field, and so you, I feel like the first thing I would have thought would have been to hell, I don't know what I would have done. You had to go into a bedding area in season and try to scout it out, but you planned it in a way so that that buck would hopefully be already on his feet heading to the food source. I think I remember hearing or seeing in the video or somewhere that you headed in there at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon or 4.30 in the afternoon to go scouting. Um, how did you... How did, tell, Maybe I'm wrong on that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But secondly, how did you plan your your route in there so you weren't spooking a bunch of deer what you know how did you actually scout it out i i gotta imagine that must have been high stakes high stakes high intensity sneaking in there when he could have still been right in there sure well uh so justin told me when he seen him out in that field a couple times he was out there most of the deer got out there around 4 30 and the buck was shortly after so my goal was i thought you know what i i, I know this area real well my goal is to dive in. Let's say the wind's coming out of the north. My goal is to dive into the south side of this uh, block of timber, slowly work my way up through there. My plan was to get as much scouting in from 4.30 till dark as I could. And I was hoping that either the deer would have already moved out into this field to feed, or if I did bump them, they would already be up and headed that way. So I come in from a south side. I checked out two uh, knolls or ridges that I thought that they he could possibly be on. Uh, one of them had some big beds but didn't have hardly any sign, uh, meaning uh, rubs or, or uh, big tracks. But the beds have been used, you know, within the last couple of weeks. Then I went to the other ridge, and it was just like a light bulb come on. I mean, you you could just feel a big buck was staying right there. Several big rubs. I seen a couple big tracks in these huge beds, big as a car hood. And I just knew that was his. And what's funny is I did not jump a single deer that evening when I come in from the backside at 430. Normally what I would do is I would go in around noon and try to scout this out. But I thought, you know what? I'll just let the deer move out and I'll come in behind them and, and figure it out because I, I knew that I could find that buck's bed. And I didn't need to jump him out of it. I just I knew he was on one of these three points. And when I went in there, like I said, it was just like a light bulb went off when I seen it. I thought, this thing's dead. If I can get a stand up in there and the wind stays constant. It, it's kind of genius, and it's not something you hear about a whole lot. I don't know if I've had anybody else talk to me about waiting for deer to leave in the afternoon and evening 
scouting out their bedding area and setting up for the next morning. I've heard of bumping them, but I've never heard of people actually trying to wait till they left. It's a, it's a small little shift, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, how did you actually, I know you described some of your thought process there, but what the tree set up, how did you, what was that actual tree? Where was it set up in relation to where you saw that bed? I'm just kind of curious about how you exactly picked that spot. Cause that decision, picking that tree close to a bed seems so crucial trying to guess how they're going to come back in the next morning, all that stuff. It definitely is. And, and you're going to, the only way you can learn that is to screw up, uh, set your stand in the wrong spot on numerous occasions before you start figuring things out. Every situation is a little bit different, but I know that this, uh, these bucks weren't going to just come, come from a South end of the farm and walk in with a nose wind and walk straight up to that bed. I knew they were feeding to the North. So I knew that they were going to have to make a little bit of a loop to just get enough of that bed to where they felt comfortable to walk up into it. So basically, the bed was northeast of me, about 30 yards, if that makes sense, with a northerly to a little bit of a west northwest wind. So I'm, I'm, off, to, I'm off the edge of that wind just a little bit. Yep. So I'm kind of south, I'm kind of southwest of the bed. The bed is northeast of me with a little, with a mainly north wind, but a little bit of west to it. And what about, yeah, and what about the ridge? So this is on a little knoll. So were you downhill from it, off the side of the ridge from it, right on the point with it? What was that looking like? I was uh, where, I wasn't right on the point because that's where the bed was. I was down from it, down towards that ditch. That's why I got up pretty high. I was probably uh, 25 uh, pushing maybe 30 feet, but it's just because of the, the drop in elevation of the tree. And you set up that evening. Am I right? When you scouted it out, you picked the tree yes. and got set up right then. Yes. I, I, I went in with a stand on my back and okay. that's, uh, that's one of the great, uh, advantages of having a ultralight tree stand. The, the Quisto series 1.0 had it on my back, had my backpack with, uh, and it had my trimmer and stuff with me and just went right in. And the whole purpose was to, uh, find that bed and set up on it immediately. And I was, I got out of there right after dark. You mentioned your trimmer. How much trimming did you do in there? I didn't have to do much at all. I had one limb I needed to cut that was dead. Uh, it was only about two foot long. And I had another uh, branch that I needed to uh, trim that was, uh, I got an extended uh, pole saw and I reached up and uh, cut it down and got right out of there. Do you usually try to keep it pretty minimal like that? Or at times, if you're going in this kind of scenario where you're just basically trying to kill them the next morning, would you be willing to do a bunch of cutting if it requires it just because you're so dead set on it's a swing or a miss, it's a home run kind of situation, you're either going to go for it all or nothing? Well, you got to be able to get the shot. So if I need to trim a couple uh, tree limbs, what have you, I'll do it. Uh, because when he comes back in there and realizes what the heck happened, he better have an arrow in him. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, I could have trimmed, in my opinion, as much as I wanted to because a big storm was coming in that night. We had X amount of rain and then it turned to snow. So whatever I did was going to be gone. I just didn't want to make things really obvious, but uh, I didn't have to trim hardly anything. That's nice. So here's here's something. I feel like most people in the scenario you described where your buddy had been hunting there and he saw the deer come out to a field in daylight multiple days in a row. Most guys at this time period in October would think, all right, I'm going to kill him in the evening. I'm going to go back to that field or sit back from that field edge a little bit and try to kill him where my buddy's been seeing him. Why didn't you do that? Why did you instead want to kill him in the morning? 
Well, and that questionnaire is exactly why I end up killing him. Uh, I had four days to hunt. Uh, the first day, the first evening when I got out there was burnt hanging the set. It was the end of October. It was, I got out there on the 20, I got out there on the 28th, 29th and I killed the thing on October 31st. I knew at any second that buck would be hooking up with a doe and be gone, be on the neighboring property, being who knows where. I didn't have time to waste. I could have sat up there and played the game on the edge of the field and possibly got a crack at him because he was coming out there almost every evening. But I didn't have time to gamble. I, I didn't have time to get out there and, you know, set a couple evenings and maybe he, he cut my track, maybe he busted me. I wanted to – I knew with the lay of this farm and those betting points, I knew that I could get in there and get it done, especially with the everything added up, the weather conditions, Justin saying he's seeing him out in the field at 430, the end of October – all that played together. If it was a week prior, I would have probably sat back and uh, played the edges of that field. So when you when you want to make this go for broke move, when you really got to get it done, you got to kill him. Is is taking that morning hunt swing in the bedding area? Your is that the go to move, or could another option in a different set of scenarios be an evening hunt, but just pushing in really tight? Um, I'm kind of curious about that. So uh, a couple things, in my opinion. Uh, late October like that, the morning hunt in his specific bed is the way to go because that's where he's coming to. If I'm hunting the edge of a field, I know he's coming out in that field, but Justin said he'd come out in that field two different times in two different spots. So do I take a gamble and get over here in this spot and he comes out in the other one? But then when I'm exiting the field that uh, he busts me or another one busts me, or do I take a gamble and jump on the other spot that he said he come out of and maybe it not happen or he end up cracking me while I'm in, on the stand and then starts playing that game and avoiding that field. I just knew that getting in there with the timing and everything, like I said, if it was a different time frame, different weather conditions, I may have played a little bit safer, but I went for broke. Yeah. How early do you try to get in for those morning hunts? Because I feel like that's always the biggest worry, especially in October, is that these bucks are going to come back to bed earlier than you know, you'd normally or earlier than you'd want them to. And then you might, they might beat you there. How early did you try to get in there? Sure. So when I'm hunting, when I'm uh, targeting a buck bed and going in and hunting that specifically bed, a couple things. I play the weather. You know, if there's a storm late in the afternoon, it, it could possibly keep them bucks out feeding longer the next morning. Uh, if the moon, I go off the moon guide, uh, I go off the overhead and underfoot moon times. If it's a red moon, and it's saying those bucks are going to be feeding within the first couple hours of daylight, that's the time to jump on that bed because they're going to be late coming back to it. And like I said, I, the weather the weather trumps moon, always trumps moon. If I can play the weather conditions, that's what I'll do. That's whatever is going to keep them on their feet longer in the morning. That way they're delayed getting back to their bed. But when I go in to hunt, uh, everybody does it a little bit differently. I know that Andre and Cody, uh, they get in there. They don't get in real early. I get in real early. I get in there at least a half an hour before daylight. I like things to settle down and get situated because, you know, packing camera gear and all that kinds of stuff and just get comfortable. And it takes me a lot longer to get to my spots because I make sure I don't, you know, break a sweat, stay as clean as I can and quiet as I can and slip right in there. Okay. What if, you do everything you tried to just, you do everything you described. You do everything as best as you possibly can. You're in the right spot. The conditions were right. Uh, you, you picked the right area, but he comes circling in 
and the wind swirls or he comes in just a little bit different than you thought and he busts you. Your your high risk, high uh, reward scenario doesn't pan out and you spook the buck. What is your game plan after that? How would you adjust? How do you relocate him? Sure. First off, you that was a great learning experience. You tried it. He did something a little bit differently. You learn that for the next time. Uh, what I would do is I would uh, I would back off. Uh, I would move to another location in that woodlot, maybe that uh, that there's some good sign, good travel, and I would uh, I would hunt that, or I would back off and just go hunt another buck for a day or two, and then bounce back in there. Not necessarily in the bed, but uh, but uh, maybe hunt the edge of the field to see if he's still coming out. Because you know they're not gonna. I mean, if he cracks you on that bed, more than likely he's not gonna come back to that bed, and he's just moving over two ridges. You know what I mean? So it's not a. So you just got to. No, it's it it could be, but but the uh, most of the time, what I found is no, they just move. I mean, he may move over two ridges. He may move to the south end of the farm. He may move to the neighbors. But, you know, I could sit back and play this game, and he may move there anyways. Why not go in and uh, if I know where he's at, go in and get it done, or at least or at least put myself, make an opportunity for myself. If I fail. And don't succeed with that opportunity, then I work my butt off to get me another one. Yeah. What about the the actual ways when you said you said you go hunt a different spot on the farm or go hunt a different farm? When you're trying to pattern a new situation, pattern a new buck, or repattern a buck, or relocate him, uh, you you've got cameras out. You've talked about that. I know that you're scouting in season, walking around, moving around. But what are you what are you specifically doing to try to find a specific buck? Is it simply doing all those things with one buck in mind and just adjusting off that? Or are there any particular things you do when it's, hey, I want this buck? Like, how do you tighten the noose on him? So, uh, for one, it depends on what time of year it is. Uh, every situation is different. If it's early season, well, I'll do these these things. If it's mid to October, I may do this. If it's the last week of October, I may do this. And then if it's the rut, it's just a crapshoot. Uh, or late season is completely different. I'll sit back and watch fields. Uh, I mainly go in and try to scout and find the biggest sign I could find and then find the biggest tracks, especially if I already know a buck is on that farm that I'm wanting to target. Usually I can go in there and look for the biggest sign and find the biggest tracks, and that's usually him. I have done that before, and it turned out to be a, you know, a, just a big-bodied, you know, let's say 130-inch, and I'm trying to kill a 170. It just depends. Uh, you know, some of these deer, heck, they uh, if you get pictures of them, you need to go in and inspect the area where you was getting pictures, especially if you got them over a scrape, and see what kind of track you got, what size of track. Is there any identification things that you can note about that track? And then if, if there is, if you can measure it, uh, you know, when it's not skewed in the dirt, and you may see that track two days later and say, oh, that's him, you know, because here's that sign, and then start building off of that. What is the... How big of a track does that have to be to get your attention? Well, I mean, I mean, I like three to three and a half finger track uh, when I'm looking at them. You know, one that's not skewed in the dirt or slid or whatever, but I'm looking at the the uh, the track. I put three fingers in it. If it's bigger than that, that gets my attention. I try to look, and if you can see where they've, let's say, walked down the edge of a creek or whatever, I want to. There's a couple of things you look at. Uh, older bucks are usually the bigger bucks, of course. And older bucks, uh, you know, they're, they, they start getting arthritis and stuff like that. So they have they have a little bit wider shoulders, and their arthritis and stuff and their back legs and stuff and their, their spine 
their feet, their back feet don't cover, don't completely cover their front track. So if you look at a track, it's three fingers wide or wider, that back foot does not come all the way up or cover the front track. That usually is an indication that it's an older buck, especially if the shoulders are a little bit wider and the back foot goes on the inside just a little bit of that front track. Hmm. So what that makes you, sense. Yeah, it does. But what do you do when you find that track? So you're out there, you're poking around, um, you come across this big track. It's a three and a half finger track. You see, you see these things and it tells you, okay, yes, this should be a big old buck. Do you stop and say, okay, I got the intel I need? Or do you follow that track a ways? Um, I'm curious, what are your next steps after that? Okay, so it depends on where I found that track. If I've scouted before and I know that they bed on this ridge here and I find this track and it's headed away from that bed, but it's still a couple hundred yards from the food source, I look at how I can take advantage of that particular spot. Or in my mind, how they're going to work their way up through there. Let's say there's another rub on up the on up the hill, let's say 60 yards. So I'm thinking, okay, I cut his track here. Here's where he crossed the creek. Especially if there's multiple, there's a fresh track and then maybe a couple old ones of, of what looks like the same track. Then I'm like, okay, here's how he's headed into that bean field or whatever. I can take advantage of, of south wind by hunting here, or I can take advantage of a north wind by hunting here, and then go ahead and throw a stand at it and set on it. And that's how you're going to find out whether he's moving in daylight in there or it's a different buck. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood 
in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I heard you say somewhere that um, you feel that mature bucks especially in certain different types of areas lay down more or less sign. So I think you said that you'd seen in, in hill country the bucks left a lot less sign while in farm country you'd see a lot more. They just tear stuff up. Um, yes. Can you Is that still true? Do you still feel like that's the case? And, and just elaborate on, on why you think that is. So a couple things. For one, every deer is different. They each got different temperaments. Some of them are just angry, mean bucks that are dominant and they tear up everything. And then some are kind of, uh, it seems like a lot of times the bigger rack bucks are kind of shy, kind of stay back, uh, aren't really hardcore uh, going into the rut kind of bucks or whatever. Uh, uh, but what I do is, uh, well, in, in hill country, what I found is the deer density is a lot less. And the sign, the deer travel a lot farther and there's not, they don't leave as much sign is what I found. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, a buddy of mine was hunting a 200-inch cla- class buck a few years ago, and you would have never thought other than tracks that there was a buck of 150-inch range in that whole, on that whole farm. There just was zero sign, but there was big tracks, and we were getting this giant on camera. Then you go to another farm, let's say hill country, or not hill country, but a farmland farm, it may have two or three 130s on it, and it looks like a world record's in there tearing up jack. <laughs> I assume because of the population, you know, higher deer density, more competition, they're leaving laying down a lot more sign. In the hill country, it's fewer bucks, fewer deer, and there's not as much competition, and, and they travel a lot farther, I'm assuming. And just like I said, the temperament of the deer. Yeah. That makes sense. Would you would you say then that a big track is the number one most important piece of sign to work from when you're looking for these kinds of deer? Well, uh, I mean, I like to see big rubs, don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, but I definitely like to see big tracks. And, for example, uh, a deer I found dead out in Iowa this year had one of the biggest feet foot tracks that I've ever seen, and it had the crappiest rack that you've ever seen. Hmm. But then again, I know out there on Andre's farm, they found a 250-inch non-typical that had to attract the size of a small doe. Wow. So, so that doesn't. So if you can, if you can add, you know, if you can take several things, if you can get a picture of a buck, whether out of mineral lick, a mock scrape, or whatever, and know that that specific buck was in there that day, and you can look at that track and associate that track with him, that helps you. If all you see is little little small tracks in that scrape, but that buck was in there the day before, then, hey, he doesn't have a very big track. But if you go in there and you haven't got a picture of this buck on that scrape for three weeks, then all of a sudden he shows up one day. And when you check the cameras all these other times, all you see in small tracks, then that buck shows up and you check the camera and you see them giant foot tracks, then you know what to look for. Yeah. Are there any other things like that when it comes to behavior differences or any kind of difference between your farm country hunting versus your hill country hunting that you've noticed over the years with, with how deer are acting or how you need to adjust? Uh, like I've said, in hill country, it seems like they move a lot farther uh, when there's not much pressure, especially during the rut. Uh, in, in farm country, you know, they, uh, I mean, they move a lot too. They just don't 
I say cover as much ground in my opinion. And, uh, but definitely, I mean, you know, like in hill country, uh, and even in farm ground, a lot of times the bucks are traveling areas that don't have, there's not a defined trail. Uh, there's not a, you know, war in a dirt trail. They're kind of, you know, moving through the area on their own. Uh, for instance, I had this one wood lot that had a big, that had a high fence through it. And there was a good buck in that area. And, uh, he was a cagey buck that I'd had pictures of for two years. And I wasn't hunting him that year because I was after another one, but I wanted to figure out where he was crossing down through that woodlot because there was a high fence through there. I say high fence, a four foot woven wire fence with a strand of bob wire along the top. And there was two openings in it where them deer could cross through. So I hung cameras on it. But when I went in there to hang cameras on it, there was, there was a tree that fell across that fence. And I thought there ain't going to be, there's not going to be any deer crossing where that tree's at when they got an opening down here and an opening over there, because it would be awkward. And kind of, you know, there wasn't any deer traffic across it that I could tell by just visually looking at it. I hung a camera on all three of those locations. And that buck, every picture I got on him was crossing where that tree was laying down. It was a, it was an out of the way path for him to get up through there, but he did not want to follow where all them other deer went. He wanted to pave his own way. Interesting. So that, that then makes me wonder this. So, so going back to your own personal history, right? You started targeting a certain size of buck or age of buck, and every year you've you've ranked you've ramped it up more and more and more till now you're after the absolute top tier buck. Have you noticed a few? I mean, I know the generic things, but has there been anything or two that you've noticed about these absolute top tier, 170 class bucks, five six year olders, whatever they are, that as far as their behavior? I know they're going to be more cautious. I know that they, you know, are smart, et cetera, et cetera. But have you noticed any specific things that those types of deer do differently than the four-year-old 140s that you used to be chasing? Sure. Well, uh, they're not out there running around like crazy most of the time in the first week of November. seems like they usually, the action starts picking up with those around the sixth or seventh from what I've seen. But then also seen too that most of them have smaller core areas. So you may go into a farm and think, you know, this buck's nocturnal. He's just not moving, so I need to wait till the rut. Well, he's in there moving, but he's just got a small, tight area he's moving in. And then it just depends on personality, too. Uh, had a buck there a few years ago that was an older age class buck, and he was a traveler. I mean, you would see him all kinds of different places. So he didn't have that small core area. But most of them that I've seen, you talk, start talking about, you know, six and a half year old deer or older, they got a small core area and to kill them outside the rut, you got to get in that circle. So what about in the rut with that kind of buck? Would you, do you, do you stick with standard rut tactics when you're after that buck and just hope that you get lucky or do you have to do anything different during the rut for that caliber? So what I found uh, in several circumstances is hopefully you got some history of him during the rut prior to that let's say cameras because you're talking about a five six year old deer so hopefully you got a little bit of a history with him if i see an area on camera that i got the previous year where he was at let's say on a certain date the year before i kind of play in my mind that i'm going to try to get over in that area around that same date hoping that he's doing the same thing a lot of times too these older bucks they've been through this game several years this uh this uh rut phase and they have learned which does come in first let's say for instance uh 
the year before I got a picture of this buck, uh, hitting a scrape really hard in this one area the last week of October. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt and scout and hunt the sign. But that last week of October, when I got pictures of him the year before, I'm going to try to get in there because I'm hoping that he does the same thing before. But I'm also playing my game of, okay, there's fresh sign over here. Here's what he's doing. This is what I need to do. During the rut, though, it's it's kind of a crapshoot. I mean, the doe can take him off to who knows where. And my opinion, I mean, I've struggled a lot in the rut. I, I say in the rut meaning uh, from, let's say, the 5th through the uh, Thanksgiving uh, I've just struggled because I'm after a particular buck and you just don't know where they're at. It's that time of year. It's being in the right stand locations, whether it's funnels or hunting doe bedding areas and putting time in the stand. What about time of day? I've, I've talked to some guys that believe that they've got a better chance during the rut, during the midday for those top tier bucks or other guys I've heard say a time of year difference. So during the rut, I've heard that sometimes that last part of November is your very best time for the very best buck. Have you seen any of that kind of thing or is it all across the board possible? Uh, during the rut, especially if I go out of state, I mean, I'm out to hunt. So I'm going to get up in the stand before daylight. I'm going to at least hunt that stand until 1.30 to 2 o'clock. Then I may end up getting down and moving towards the edge of a food source. I'll be back in bedding cover and stuff like that until about 1.30 or 2. Or I may hang out in that spot all day long. But normally... When you're back in them funnels, back in the doe bedding areas, the action's uh, good up until around 1.30 to 2. And then I like relocating to a food source. And that way I catch that action coming back out to the food sources. But yeah, hunting during midday is always great during uh, November. I say great. Uh, you know, you're going to see, it's going to be a long set, but at any, chance, at any point in time, a giant buck could come walking by. And you just got to be there. It's time on stand during the rut, and that's why I don't I don't care for it as much because I'm 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 hunting in October. It's on my terms. You know what I mean? It's going to happen in the morning. It's going to happen in the evening. I don't have to worry about midday because I'm scouting and resetting up for the that evening. Yeah. During the rut, it's just you know button your stand. Yeah. Okay. So this this is an interesting dilemma to consider. You are, I know you're pretty mobile. Um, I'm assuming, and I guess I don't even know if, maybe I didn't ask you this. I guess let's ask this first, this question first. If you're setting up somewhere, it's a morning hunt, let's say. It could be morning or afternoon, I guess. You see the buck you're after and he moves, he does something, he's out of range. Let's say he's 80 yards out of range or something. Um, My question is, would you immediately tear down and move to go hunt that buck you know, at that spot you saw him. And so I guess the question is, answer me that, but answer me that for two scenarios. During the rut versus sometime in October. I'm curious if you would do things differently during the rut because it's more random versus mid-October, late October when they're on a little bit more of a pattern. Sure, I would definitely do it differently uh, each depending on the situation. During October, uh, I would let the, if, if he, I've seen one crossing, uh, let's say 80 yards out in front of me at 8:30 in the morning, I would probably play it out till about nine 30, let things settle down. Then I would tear down my stand and I would slip up there. If I seen some things that led me to believe that, you know, he's crossed here more than just once, I would definitely hang a stand and be back in it the following morning to hunt it and hopefully catch him crossing back there again at eight 30, at least give it a good shot to see what happens. 
and I may even set that evening on that spot if the wind plays out right. Uh, during the rut, and it all depends on the situation, if I'm setting in the spot because I've seen all this stuff play out here before, then I'm going to set where I'm setting. If I'm going to stay where I'm at. If, if I'm just in a spot that is kind of mediocre or whatever, and I see that happen and one buck cuts through there and then possibly another one, I may tear down immediately and jump up there. What kind of situation would make you believe that you are in the spot? I know that it's always going to be de- various different things could be telling you that, but I'm just kind of curious if you could paint the picture of a, of a scenario where you would say, oh yeah, this is the kind of spot that I'm going to stick it out in. What does that look like for you? Uh, let's say possibly the uh, the downwind side of a bedding area on a ridge to where uh, a lot of does are bedded in, and I just I've had little bucks and different things come up through there and clue me in on exactly where the bucks are traveling, or at the top of a ditch hunting a rut funnel, or at the uh, you know at the at the where a bottleneck of the, the woods bottles down and heads over into another block of timber. But you know, I've set the I've set those funnels on the block of timbers to where it narrows down and goes to the next one, and then you know, one year, uh, everything's traveling right underneath of you. Then the next year, you see one or two bucks and they're cutting across, you know, upwind of you, or cutting across the open field and then cutting in. There's some reason they're doing that. Normally, I'll jump over there if I see uh, multiple deer go through that same area. Okay. Uh, but I've also screwed up and moved and looked back and it was happening where I was at. So, yeah. you just got to – every situation's different and uh, you make the best uh, – you make the best decision you can, and you live with it. Yeah. I've definitely felt the uh, the negative effects of that decision on occasion myself. I've played the cat and mouse game the wrong way sometimes. Sure. And you you, you can only learn from that by uh, uh, failing, doing it and failing. Then you just learn from it. Yeah. So is there is there a buck like this that you already have on your mind for the 2020 season? Do you have the one already uh picked out or in your sights i have a couple that i'm hoping that uh, show back up hopefully i'll be getting pictures of them here in the next month and uh i've already got uh, you know i've ran through my mind several times on uh, how i'm going to approach uh, hunting it uh you know this buck has been active before in early october and he definitely gets active uh the second week of november so we'll just uh i'll play it by ear i'll scout and uh when uh when i see that i need to uh you know, uh, get in there. That's what I'll do. I, I got to know more. So he, he, he's, he's can get active in early October. So I'm curious, how are you going to monitor him leading into October? I know we've already discussed some of your generic ideas, but I'm curious specifically with this buck, how are you going to keep tabs or know when to strike early in October? And are you willing to go hard at him in early October, even though you know, you'll get that maybe better chance in November or is it you want to go really hard in October because he's patternable while in November he might be more random. What's the thought process there with this guy? Sure. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll hunt him the whole time, but I know in October from years past, last couple years that he's been active on a certain feeding source the first couple weeks of the season. So I'm going to try to, I'm not going to you know, dive in there deep, get on the bed or whatever. I'm going to actively hunt that feeding source when you know when the conditions are good to go in there like right you know the on high pressure days right after a, a weather front uh, a rainstorm or whatever come through when i know that's it's primo deer activity evening i'll jump in there and hunt in the morning this buck in early october i don't i, I don't have figured out so i'm gonna have to hang back 
I, I'll when I hunt in early October, I'll it'll be hunts that uh, that aren't uh, I'm not jeopardizing a lot. I'm not giving up a lot. Uh, and then if I can continue scouting in there, tiptoe around, then later on in October, I'm gonna jump in there where I think he's bedded if things aren't playing out for me. And I'm going to go in there and see if I can bust him out of his bed because there's bedding area that I think he stays in. He could be bedding in multiple spots. So if it plays out and I get into the last week of October, I'll tiptoe in there with the wind in my face and see if I can bust him out of there and get in there the next day and try to kill him. If not, I'll probably blow him out of that spot. And then I'll have to play it for about the 5th or 6th of uh, November. And knowing that he prefers these different doe bedding areas and I'm going to hunt those doe bedding areas and funnels in between. You've a couple of times through our conversation, you've alluded to these spots that you know, or, or that you think he's bedding in. Um, and I haven't drilled down more into that and I should. Can you describe some of the types of setups that you typically find these bigger, older bucks choosing as bedding areas? Um, there's a handful in my mind that I can think of like, Hey, if I'm, if you know, if I'm expecting or if I'm trying to figure out where a buck might be bedded, I'm going to guess, well, my first guess on this property would be this thicket here or it would be this knob on a ridge or something like that. I'm curious what the generic types of scenarios you look for when trying to find those buck beds. Sure. Well, uh, it's just by trial and error mainly. Uh, in the past, uh, different farms that I've hunted, I've hunted for several years. And uh, you may think a buck's betting in this spot, and, and it turns out he's not, because I've guessed a lot of times and been completely wrong. But what I do is you go in and scout, and like I said, two weeks before, you go in there and jump all these spots that maybe that you uh, maybe that you found in this in the spring, or maybe you're just it's a new farm and you're in there tromping around looking, and you end up coming up, and it's like, oh yeah, they're betting in here, bucks especially with rubs, big beds. It's usually on a uh, let's say a ridge, uh, inside of the timber, uh, with predominant, you know, like in Southern Ohio, we get predominant Southwest winds. So, you know, he's going to, how he's going to be setting up to, uh, to take advantage of that wind. And, and they like to be able to look where they can see out in front of them and then kind of on a knoll where they can bounce off of one side or the other and disappear. And it's just time and time again, going in and looking at these areas and jumping deer out of them and hunting these spots to actually figure out what they're doing. Some of them may be doing it a little bit differently, but they're all trying to survive and they're trying to protect themselves from a coyote slipping up on them, a hunter or whatever. And they manipulate them just maybe just a hair different, but, but they're all still trying to do the same thing. They want to look at their back trail. They want their back kind of up against some cover and they want to be able to uh, catch that wind coming over their shoulder. Yeah. Do you find any similar um, patterns when it comes to how these older bucks or bigger bucks move when they're heading to feed? I hear, I've heard various, some people think they're always going to move with the wind quartering to or in their face. Some guys have said they've seen tailwinds. Um, is it kind of everything for you, or do you kind of live, or, sorry, do you go into hunts with certain assumptions about how they use wind in those scenarios. Sure. Well, uh, so for one, uh, I mean, deer travel, you know, with a tailwind a lot, their most vulnerable spot on them is their back trail because coyotes coming up on them. They don't know if people can, can track them or scent track them or what they don't know. So what I found a lot of times is the deer will travel quartering downwind or just kind of headed downwind a lot of times. I know that in the morning when you're hunting beds, 
the wind, their travel is completely based on wind. In the evening, it's mainly on where they want to go. If, if they're wanting to go to a food source that's to the north of them and they got a south wind, well, they're still going to go to the, the north because that's where they want to go. They may loop a little bit more out, but that's what they're going to do. They're going to use more of their eyesight than the wind because they don't have the wind to their advantage. Now, when hunting in those situations, you want it depends on where they're going. If you can get it to where they can, if they are using a nose wind, let's say, to get to that food source, well, then you got to take advantage of that by just getting off to the side of that wind. If, if that's, uh, if you could see what I'm talking about, you yeah. just want to be off to the side to where, you know, he thinks he's comfortable with what wind he's getting, and you're just on the edge of that. Yeah. To where your wind's blowing that, down that way, but he's too far over to one side to get it. Yep. But it's not impossible. You're saying that he might come out there with it blowing right out into the middle of the field, completely away from him, making it super safe for you as a hunter. But, uh, he, you know, you've seen some bucks do that sometimes too. Sure, absolutely. And, like, for instance, uh, you got a north wind. The buck's bedded to the south. He gets up out of his bed. Let's say the wind isn't that strong that evening. So the bucks back here messing around, doing whatever they do, feeding, maybe making some rubs, making scrapes or whatever back in his bedding area. He hasn't moved too far. He feels comfortable in that little 50-yard bubble because he's been laying there all day. And let's say he's waiting till the sun sets a little bit. And then he's moving over toward closer towards the field, and he's starting to catch them thermals coming from out in the field back into the woods. And if you notice, a lot of these bucks like coming out in the low spots of these fields. Uh-huh. It's like a, the, the, the thermals all pull down to those lower spots. So he, he can stand in that spot, especially if the wind isn't blowing very hard, even though it is coming from the south to the north. He could be headed north. The thermal switch, everything starts sucking down to those cold spots, which are the low spots in the field, and he's gathering all this stuff uh, in the field through his nose before he even steps out in it. Plus – he has all the dummies out there that's been out there a half an hour to an hour. All these other young bucks and does and all this kinds of stuff. So it makes me feel more comfortable. Yeah. How do you, as a hunter, play that scenario when you've got a high deer population where there's going to be a bunch of deer out in that field? So you don't want to have your wind blowing too much into the woods because there's a lot of does and young bucks coming out. Um, but at the same time, if they get past you safely and your wind's blowing behind you into the field, they'll eventually catch your wind and blow out maybe 10 minutes before the end of daylight, and then the buck gets you know, cascaded back too. Um, I heard Andre DeQuisto talk once about how he really likes a right-along-the-edge-of-the-field wind in that kind of scenario. Um, is that something you look for too, or is it... I realize it's going to be dependent, but what are your thoughts on that? It's definitely dependent. Uh, I mean, I, I completely understand the concept of it blowing down along the edge of the field, Normally, if it's blowing like kind of back into the woods, I usually hunt back in the woods 40 yards or so. You know, that way I let the deer, if I let the deer get past me and they get out there in the field, you know what I mean? And my wind's blowing back into the woods, but it's off to the side of where I suspect suspect the buck's going to be moving out and yeah. through. So, and then the wind, you know, hunting the edge of the field with the wind blowing out into the field uh, is tricky because all the other deer can possibly wind you i hope that if i do hunt in that situation and the deer actually win me that it's early and they head out the other way yeah and if they head out the other way 
you know, what's, what's going to be tricky is, is when the buck comes out, let's say he's standing there on the edge. If he don't see any other deer in the field, he may get a little leery or whatever, but hopefully he's got another, uh, young buck or something with him or out in front of him. And, uh, they don't catch my wind until I get an opportunity. Yeah. Well, this scenario I've had happen before where I've, I've been out set up in a scenario where a doe kind of wins me. I had a kind of risky wind, but I'm counting on that buck coming in late and I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can get away with it. But a, a doe gets something. She's not happy, but she's not going to blow right out. So maybe let's say it's 45 minutes till dark or an hour before dark or something like that. It's kind of getting to prime time, but it's not the very end of the night. And she's getting wonky. She's doing the foot stomp. She's bobbing her head up and down. And maybe she's blue, maybe she blew once. She blew. She bounded off five yards. Then she looks back. She does the foot stomp. Her head's going up and down. I've been in that situation where I've, I'm cursing myself. I'm upset. I want that deer to leave. Would you ever proactively do something to get her out of there completely because you don't want her to linger there for another 20 minutes blowing every once in a while? Or do you worry that if you were to spook her even more, it can make things worse? How would you handle that? So it, then again, every situation is different. If it's early and I know that no other deer has another chance to uh, see me, especially if, see, if she knows something's up and maybe a couple little ones or other ones that are out don't, uh, I will look around and when these other deer are looking the other way or doing whatever and she's staring at me, let's say she see me in the stand, I'm definitely going to make some movements to try to blow her out of there just to get her down over the hill and out, just want her away from me. And used to, I would just, I would almost just end a hunt if I got busted by any deer. Anymore, over the years, I've learned in my talking to other uh, very successful hunters that, you know, as long as it's not the deer you're after, then it doesn't matter. And then, you know, because if they snored, if they run, if they, you know, blow or whatever and run off, well, that buck doesn't know if it's a coyote, doesn't know if it's somebody driving down along the edge of the field, doesn't know if it's a hunter. They don't know. I mean, if you've been sitting in the woods before and heard deer over there blowing and acting up or whatever, you don't have any idea what they're doing over there. It could be a coon. Yeah. So don't let that ruin your hunt. But if I can, if in some way, shape or form, other than sending an arrow through her, uh, can get her to leave. I've waved my hat before to get them to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've yet to purposely spook those does away, but I've gotten to thinking that that's probably the smarter thing to do in some scenarios. So I think I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> sure. This is, uh, this is good stuff, Heath. I've been enjoying this. Um, I've been keeping you here for a while though. And I know it's even later where you're at on the East coast or East part of the United States versus where I'm here on farther West. So I got to let you go. But, uh, okay. I, I want to end with this. If your life was dependent on someone, you know, killing a big, huge buck, killing a six year old one seventy plus, And I said, Hey, if, if such and such person doesn't kill a Boone and Crockett buck within this week, you're done, Heath. I'm taking away your bow. I'm taking away your hunting rights. I'm taking everything away, and you're you're going to jail or whatever, whatever it is. If you had to bet your life or your hunting future or whatever it was on someone killing a buck like that, who would you pick, and why would you pick them? So I, I know a lot of people in the hunting industry, uh, mainly all the big famous deer hunters or whatever. I've I've met, talked to, uh, listened to podcasts, followed along with them or whatever. There's one guy that I would, that's at the top of my list every time something like this would come up 
and I hang on every word when he's speaking, and that's Andre DeQuisto. He is the most lethal, deadly killer that I know. He looks at everything differently. I mean, he he's a you can stand there in the woods and talk to him, and the guy is looking over your shoulder. He's looking out the side. You know, I mean, he's 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 a predator, and that's who I would have. That's uh, I thought that might be it. He I certainly wouldn't want him hunting me. <laughs> no. No, and his boy is a chip off the old block, which is scary. It seems like it. So, Heath, if people want to follow along with your hunts this year or anything else you got going on, where can they where can they find that stuff? Sure. I, uh, my videos are on Whitetail Addictions, and that's you can go to a Lone Wolf Custom Gear YouTube uh, channel and watch them and uh, look for all the new equipment coming out from Lone Wolf Custom Gear. They got their .5 stands coming out that are less than six pounds. Uh, several things uh, coming out here in the future, hopefully before season. So look for all that stuff. Awesome. Well, uh, I'll be looking forward to watching the future videos and see how you guys do this season. I, uh, I'm hoping that you get that one big buck down, uh, early October and we can, uh, chat again and hear how you did it. That sounds good. I appreciate you having me on Mark and uh, good luck to you this fall. Thanks Heath. All right, guys and gals, that is today's episode. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Um, you know, if you want to see what Heath's been up to and Justin, as we talked about last week, make sure to check out that Whitetail Addictions YouTube channel. Um, there's some cool hunts over there. And if you want to stay up to date on what I'm up to, make sure you are following my articles over on TheMeatEater.com. I'm writing weekly columns over there. Lots of good stuff. Make sure to check that out. And then, of course, follow Wired Hunt on Instagram where you're going to see my stories and what's happening in my hunting world and the other things i've got going on so appreciate you tuning in appreciate checking it all out good luck out there as you're scouting and preparing for hunting season and until next time stay wired to hunt i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.